listening to The Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system away. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Listeners, I'm excited about this show. I've been trying to get it to you, but it's taken me a while. But finally, we're there. This month, we're investigating the medical industry. And yes, it's virtually become too big to fail. There is a plethora of reform options that we could undertake from pharmacies to private health insurance, the cost of drug subsidies, and then the big one, the effects of big pharma and that concentration that continues to occur amongst uh, the company structures there. Uh, how's that influencing the falling rate of research and development? And has that contributed to the pain of the pandemic? It's a big show, and I hope you can support 3CR in our Radiothon drive. So visit 3cr.org.au to support the Renegade Economists, to support 3CR's independent media. So today we are joined by Stephen Duckett, Director, Health Program at the Grattan Institute. We're lucky to have him as he's been doing media all week long following his big new report coming out of the COVID-19 lockdown, the next steps for Australian healthcare. I started off by asking Stephen about this report uh, and it, and its uh, focus on the immediate pressures of the pandemic. Uh, for a bit of a synopsis, how is Australia doing? Well, in terms of COVID-19, Carl, uh, Australia is doing remarkably well. We've more or less got the uh, pandemic under control. Apart from a little spike in Victoria this week, uh, there are states where it's completely eliminated. And so in international terms, we're looking pretty good. That's not to say that uh, we don't have challenges. Uh, as I said, there's a spike this week, and so we've got to worry about uh, future spikes as well. But what's interesting, I think, is what we can learn from the pandemic. And the, the health system changed a lot uh, during the pandemic, and most notably, for example, with the dramatic increase in the use of telehealth. And so, you know, there are changes that occurred during the pandemic we want to keep as part of the health system of the future. Certainly, yeah. Uh... Uh, telehealth has been uh, one area you've been uh, impressed with. Uh, what about some of the other aspects of how we can bring the entire health system into line so it's, it's working in unison rather than these competing factions? During the pandemic, uh, more or less all elective surgery was closed in uh, public and private hospitals. And, of course, private hospitals, more or less their core business is to elective procedures. And so uh, the private sector was closed down the, for partly to make sure there was enough uh, personal protective equipment for the public sector and partly also to provide an overflow capacity in, in, uh, in case the public sector was overwhelmed. Now, that didn't, in fact, happen. But what happened was there are lot of contracts, every state issued contracts with the private sector to, uh, in case they needed to use those beds and facilities and so what what we've said is well hang about if you can do that during a pandemic can you use those facilities into the long term and and this is important because uh health insurance activity or health insurance prevalence in australia is dropping as especially young people drop out of uh, private health insurance 
And this is going to mean that uh, there's going to be private hospitals that aren't quite as busy as they used to be. And so one of the issues is, well, can the public sector use those private facilities uh, to take some of the load off the off the public sector? Well, that's certainly a delicate issue. Uh, I imagine there'd be uh, some financial manoeuvring. What sort of rents would be charged in, in that situation to the public health system? Well, the issue, Carl, is that the private hospitals, if private health insurance drops, then they've got to worry about can they occupy their beds? And they might say, well, we've, got, we've now got a whole empty ward. Why don't we lease that to the public sector? Why don't we enter into a deal um, to take public patients at uh, marginal costs? And so it could be a win-win situation that the public sector gets things at a reasonable price and the private sector gets the money they wouldn't otherwise have got because uh, the private health insurance market is dropping. I must say you're very prolific online and uh, I picked up on an article of yours, The Consequences of Private Involvement in Healthcare, the Australian Experience. And a lot of the the plaudits of uh, having a private healthcare system are coming under question. Uh, Can you summarise some of the the key concerns you have there? You know, people say, oh, you know, we we subsidise the private health insurance or the private health sector to the tune of about $10 billion a year. And you've got to say, is this really worth it? And uh, of that $10 billion, $6 billion or so, just a bit more than $6 billion is the subsidy to private health insurance, a bit more than $3 billion is uh, the subsidy to doctors, private doctors in private hospitals. And so together it's almost 10 And so you say, well, that's a lot of money. Is it, is it really worth it? And the, the first question you say is, well... Uh, it may be worth it if the uh, if the private hospitals are more efficient than the public hospitals. Well, it turns out they're not. Uh, people stay longer in uh, private hospitals than they do in public hospitals, uh, and that's not a so. There's no, in a sense, economic efficiency argument uh, to, uh, to subsidise the private industry. A second argument might be that if the private sector takes demand off the public sector, that is, uh, if you encourage people to take out private health insurance, they'll use the uh, private hospitals and therefore uh, there'll be less demand on the public sector and therefore, for example, waiting lists will go down. So we looked at uh, the extent to which uh, there was private hospital activity in a particular specialty in a particular state and what whether bigger amount or increased private hospital activity meant there were lower waiting lists. Well, the short answer is it didn't show that at all. That is, the, the, to, to, to some extent, the, the more the private hospital activity, the more the, the public sector waiting list. So there's no evidence that uh, private hospitals per se and, and encouraging people into the private sector, encouraging people into private health insurance, uh, actually reduce public sector waiting lists at all. And then you say, well, what happens if we didn't have that subsidy? What would happen? And wouldn't the public sector be completely and utterly overwhelmed? Well, $10 billion is a lot of money. And then you've got to say, well, if you took away all of that $10 billion, how many people would still have health insurance? Well, at the moment, about 41 42% of the Australian population has some form of insurance for private hospital care. Many of them have um, sort of junk sort of products and 
and only about 25% of the population has insurance for everything in the private hospital sector. So you say, well, where will, if you took away the subsidy, where will the, where will the, the level of uh, in, insurance drop to? And that's a matter of speculation. Before there was a subsidy, the level of insurance was around 30% of the population. And my guess is it will drop to the same sort of level, which means about a third of the people who currently have health insurance drop, will drop, drop their health insurance. And so you'd save 10 billion and you'd increase your uh, demand on the public sector by about 20%, which you could easily cover with that uh, 10 billion. Yeah, so there's a $10 billion uh, you've got on the table there. What are some of the other uh, big ticket items we could look at if we were trying to uh, ultimately improve the flexibility of our health system to deal with these looming pandemic type issues? Uh, the need for greater flexibility has, has become an obvious point during this crisis. Well, I think one of the things we need to do is think about is, is our health system fit for purpose? And, you know, the Medicare was designed in the 1960s uh, based on a system which is even older than that. And we've, we've got a, a primary care system which is still structured and funded along the ways that it was in the 60s and 50s. And since then, the whole nature of the epidemiology, the, the diseases that there exist in the society have changed and so we've got a much greater prevalence of uh, chronic disease than we used to have and yet we pay for our primary care as if it's all acute and episodic disease, as if everything is an independent uh, individual consultation and we've got no payment arrangements which really encourage continuity of care and looking after a person over their life course and encouraging self-management and encouraging outreach from a primary practice. So we've got to say, you know, are we is our structure all wrong for all these sorts of things? And what should we do differently and how should it look different? And I, I think that's where we've got to step back and say, you know, are we, for example, using nurses in, in the primary care system to the extent we ought? Are we fully utilising their skills? Are we, are we integrating pharmacists into the uh, primary care system to the extent they ought to be and using pharmacists to do everything they could possibly do? So there's a lot of major structural changes we need to think about into the long term if we're going to have our health system be better than it is at the moment. You're on 3CR. It's Radiothon time. We'd love your support. Visit 3cr.org.au and uh, click through to donate. We've got to keep these independent stories alive and well, as you're about to hear in the upcoming segment with Stephen Duckett, Director of the Health Program at the Grattan Institute. So uh, the health costs in the Australian budget, uh, you know, largely picked up uh, that health uh, is one of the big drivers of, of government budgetary pressures. And you've pointed out that our health system is sort of uh, short-term focused. It doesn't really look at the deep underlying causes. I remember myself, one of the only times I've gone to private health uh, was for a, an eye problem. Uh, blepharitis is something I suffer from. And 
waited two and a half hours, finally got in, uh, a three-minute prescription was drawn up and I was out the door. A week later, I went back to, you had the same problem, went back to the public health service, waited a, a lesser amount of time, but I also got a very important printout that showed me what I had to do and reminded me um, uh, the process for it. So it was that sort of proactive, preventative process that was was important. I haven't been back since because I've been <laughs> taught properly. So, uh, yeah, how does the the, the Medicare structure really um, penalise that sort of uh, longer consultation time and, and, you know, even keeping doctors in the same uh, uh, location in some way or other? It seems to be such a high turnover of doctors in our area. So, you know, one of my slogans in a sec is that every good curative intervention has a preventive component, that, that if it's a really good uh, uh, curative uh, meet, uh, consultation with your doctor, not only will you get uh, care and cure for what you visited the doctor for, but the doctor will give you advice about how to prevent coming back again. But, of course, that's not in the business interest of the doctor. The doctor gets or the doctor's practice gets reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis and so the more times they see someone, the more people they see, the better. And so there's no incentive on the doctor uh, to uh, prevent a visit, rather, rather the reverse. Now, of course, many doctors are totally committed to prevention, are totally keen to look after their patients the best way they can, but the practice incentives are not that way at all. Okay, so you mentioned earlier um, pharmacies and and uh, bringing them into the fold. Uh, you know, when you look through the whole health system, uh, it is an issue that uh, there's a form of protection for ph- pharmacies, and that, uh, for example, no no competing pharmacy can be located within a number of kilometres of of one that's already up and running. So. Uh, has uh, there been any movement to improve on that? And ha- how is the Australian health system sitting in terms of reform? It seems like 2007 was was a bit of a bellwether year where they recognised the need to pull back on some of the the, the profit-seeking, the, the rent-seeking that's going on within the industry. The pharmacy industry is a very interesting uh, case in point. There's a a lobby group, the Pharmacy Guild, which represents pharmacy owners, and basically they have an enormous amount of power. And in the last couple of weeks, they've just signed what's called the Seventh Community Pharmacy Agreement, the Seventh CPA, as it's called. And this was signed after secret negotiations between the government and the Pharmacy Guild. Consumers were not involved. Doctors were not involved. No one was involved other than the pharmacy owners. And the the government gave a whole lot of extra money to pharmacy owners as part of this agreement. And there was a deal that there won't be any change other than what's been agreed to uh, during the whole course of this agreement. So it it stymies government from responding quickly and and appropriately to changes in the environment. It stymies government from responding to changes in the environment. So, uh, and... All sorts of things are covered in this agreement that really protect the existing pharmacy owners and are not in the interest of consumers. So, for example, uh, there are the so-called location rules. You can't have 
uh, you, you can't set up a, a, a new pharmacy graduate can't go and buy a shop and set up a pharmacy wherever they like, even if it's in the metropolitan area. So in rural areas, you might say, oh, you've got to be careful about uh, competition because it might uh, create, un it might undermine the viability of pharmacy practices and, and it will reduce access. But you don't have arguments like that in the city. And what the evidence is from overseas, if you have competition, you actually drive down prices and you improve services in the cities. So you, you, the existing pharmacy owners have this uh, monopoly on, on, uh, on where they are and, and they stop competition and that is not in the interests of patients. Another interesting thing is that no one else other than a pharmacist can own a pharmacy. And so again, that pushes the price up for the existing pharmacy owners because this stops competition, it stops you know, big corporates coming along and taking over uh, pharmacies and uh, improving efficiency. So it really is a, is a quite interesting protected industry uh, and the government has just signed another agreement with them to protect them for another five years and none of that is in the interest of patients. And because of that, uh, the, our prices uh, are higher than in many other countries. Uh, that's one aspect to the pricing system. Uh, what are some of the other major contributors to uh, Australia's uh, uh, pricing structure within uh, the pharmaceutical industry? So it's not only pharmacy owners who are, uh, are rorting the system and, and, and extracting uh, excess rents or excess payments from the, the Commonwealth Government, but also the pharmacy importers. So obviously most drugs are invented, discovered and manufactured overseas. And so there's a global market for drugs. And so we can compare what we pay for drugs in Australia with what other countries pay, such as New Zealand or Canada or England. And what we've found is that by and large, we're paying a bit more in Australia for the pharmaceutical benefit scheme than they do overseas. But not only that, but also in particular classes of drugs, New drugs have been added to the pharmaceutical benefit scheme and they cost a whole lot of extra money without providing significant extra benefit. So there might be a marginal benefit uh, with adding this new drug to the list, but we're paying a lot more for it. And the government introduced a scheme to address that uh, called the Therapeutic Price Premium Scheme. Uh, and basically, the pharmacy manufacturers and the pharmacy importers nobble the scheme so it doesn't work as intended so that they can make bigger profits into the longer term. You're on 3CR's A Renegade Economist. This week we're talking with Stephen Duckett, the Director of the Health Program at the legendary Grattan Institute. So, Stephen, uh, behind some of these pricing issues within the pharmaceutical industry, there's a concern, a growing concern that uh, with the concentration of um, pharmacy companies at a global level, uh, the level of investment in research and development is perhaps not as, not as great and uh, it comes to mind the 2004 uh, initial patent surrounding the coronavirus. Uh, one of its core findings was uh, the need for greater uh, research in this space. Now, uh, 
with uh, falling uh, research and development amongst fewer and fewer companies. I wonder um, what your perspective is on on that. So the, the the drug companies always talk about you know they're the innovation engines of the health system and that they uh, take all these risks with this investment and that uh, as a result of that they should be rewarded with higher prices. The reality, of course, is that it is nothing like that at all. So what the reality is, is most basic research is done in universities funded by governments. That this basic research might lead to some innovation and once the research has proceeded far enough, it, the, the university or the, uh, the academics might form a little company uh, to, to progress it a bit further. And what actually happens, most of the risk of all of this in innovation and so on is taken by companies and then the big company comes along and swallows them up. And so the, what we're seeing is a market process where the public good, the universities, the publicly funded research underpins all of this innovation endeavour and the benefits accrue to a small number of very large companies who then claim that they have taken risks when the only risk they've really taken is, is which companies to buy and which companies not to buy. The second thing that's happening in this industry is much of the innovation is about marginal changes to existing products which then they can claim can be have a patent applied to them and that leads to uh, an, a revenue stream. And the, this is called me too innovation, that it's almost the same, but it, it uh, is a different enough that you can get a patent for it. And this is not the quantum change we need in the health system. And it just leads to what's happened is the pharmaceutical industry is the most profitable industry in the world, and which suggests that there are excess profits in that industry, which suggests that the, the interests of the industry are entirely about making money and not about actually delivering product innovation, actually de de delivering benefits to uh, consumers. Wow, you said the world's most profitable industry. And what I'm hearing there is that that these patents are forming a thicket, a patent thicket around their core product to fend off any competition in that space and uh, therefore maximise uh, the profit taking that can occur. And yeah, th this sort of uh, uh, debate around uh, whether R&D has actually suffered under both this agglomeration, this concentration within the industry, uh, and then um, the acceleration of, of patents. Uh, yeah, the, the medical industry, they've got some questions coming, haven't they? Yeah, no, it's not to say, I mean, I think medical research is a good thing. I think that there's nothing wrong with a company making profits. But what the problem is, is the super profits, the, the excess profits that the pharmaceutical industry is making, which means the health system becomes more expensive, which means we can't provide the services to everybody in a way which the economy can afford. Yes, and uh, we've now got, uh, you know, in this pandemic era, uh, competing agendas. The European Union's been on the front foot uh, promoting the need for 
some open science where uh, scientific developments are shared across uh, companies, across borders to try and um, solve this immense economic and health crisis that's uh, threatening the, the world. Australia seems like we're going to fall in line with uh, the pro-patent, pro-copyright uh, American um, uh, line of thinking. Uh, have you heard anything differently and uh, is there anything within that debate we should, we should really know about? Not at all. I mean, basically what we're seeing here is this is a, this is a drug which expensive, if, if we can find a vaccine, wealthy countries will be, every wealthy country will be purchasing it. So there's a lot of money to be made in a vaccine against COVID-19, against the coronavirus. So this is a very profitable potential. And so that's why there are literally dozens of research groups trying to actually work out, can we get a vaccine against coronavirus? Because there's money to be made and that's what they'll do. Yes, uh, but the the open science uh, approach could see research labs around the world working on it uh, around the clock, accelerating their understanding at a much faster rate than even the most powerful companies. So that's the challenge that's been thrown to the medical industry. And it seems like uh, there's been some pretty serious rebuffs of, of that, that approach. So that's the, that's a really important thing. Can we actually get that uh, open science agenda moving? I'm wondering what impact our free trade agreements have on our patent regimes, uh, uh, the TRIPS-type uh, arrangements, those, those um, uh, international agreements. Have uh, they helped or hindered the development of uh, new medicines and the pricing attached? So the pharmaceutical industry in the United States is extremely powerful. As I said, it's the most profitable industry. It's a very big industry in the United States. And so they ensure that one of the big things on the agenda as part of trade negotiations, especially with the United States, is enhancing the position of the US pharmaceutical industry. And so every time there are, pharma there are trade negotiations, it's a battle to protect the Australian taxpayer and the Australian consumer's interest against the interests of the US pharmaceutical companies. And in particular, the US pharmaceutical companies try every trick in the trade to try and undermine the processes of the pharmaceutical benefit scheme in Australia because the pharmaceutical benefit scheme says, we will have new drugs come onto the scheme if we can demonstrate, or if you can demonstrate, that they are value for money, they actually improve people's lives, they actually uh, do what they say they're going to do and so on. And basically the, the American pharmaceutical companies don't want to have to justify the prices they charge, don't want to have to be held to account and they try and weaken the uh, pharmaceutical benefit scheme every time we have so-called free trade negotiations. And so this is a, a matter of constant vigilance uh, to try and ensure that they don't undermine the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. Yes, long live the public health system. Uh, Stephen Duckett, would there be, could you give us just a couple of improvements we could make to that PBS pricing system? I think you mentioned uh, benchmarking earlier. Uh, have there been any recent developments that yeah. are good news in this space? I think that the critical issue is to, that it is a scheme which is 
the envy of the world. We started uh, the pharmaceutical benefit scheme really early and Canada is now only now, uh, 70 years or so later, catching up, for example. So it's a really good scheme, but it can be improved uh, in the pricing area that we've already talked about, but also in the equity area. So when we're judging drugs to come onto the, the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, we don't take equity issues into account sufficiently in my view. So there are ways we can improve it, but we've got to say we start from a very good base. So there we go, listeners, another example of an industry that fights off competition, that tries to erect barriers around their business in order to push prices higher and higher. If they don't do that, they constrict the supply. And as I was listening to Stephen talk there about plummeting research and development by the big pharma companies, I could see a bit of an analogy between what's happening there and uh, our major land bankers who slowly drip feed land to the market to to enforce scarcity, to push prices higher. And if you like uh, the agglomeration that's happened between the big pharmaceutical companies, so there's only a handful of them running uh, the global medical industry these days, uh, they've wound back their research and development They've also wound back their peer-reviewed publishing of the remaining science. Both factors have reduced the utility of medicine to these issues we face today. And from it, uh, the pain of the pandemic has been magnified greatly. And I was sent a... 2007 patent on the coronavirus isolated from humans on May 22, 2007. And one of their key findings, the very top of the document is, look, we've got to spend a lot more time researching this SARS-CoV genome and the amino acid sequences because it is a big threat to humanity. But what has uh, uh, the, the top heavy pharmaceutical companies done they've done less research and so now just when society uh, is at on its knees uh, the pharmaceutical industry a company in america called moderna has been given 438 million dollars us dollars to do the sort of uh, uh, research into vaccines that you would think are a forward-thinking publicly interested uh, medical industry would already be working on. But as Stephen said, so much of this science is developed through our public universities and then the profits are privatised by uh, these, these big ruthless companies. So that battle towards open science uh, is going to be a big one. We need scientists sharing their findings in real time so that different laboratories can be working on this around the clock. Let's hope the Europeans win this one. But instead, organisations like Prosper Australia are run on barely <laughs> the smell of an oily rag. Uh, you know, th- 3CR publishing these important news stories that that very few of any other media outlets are producing. Uh, Again, you know, we're asking for a quarter of our usual budget, but even that's a struggle in these pandemic times, whilst these goddamn monopolists are making 
the millions and billions of dollars in easy profits, whether it's in crunching land prices back and asking for home renovation bailouts or it's crunching R&D levels back and then a crisis erupts and all of a sudden the public money is thrown at these same companies. Uh, We need politicians to be aware of this. We need the public to step up and understand that this form of rent-seeking is destroying society. So please get involved. Send me an email, renegades at earthsharing.org.au and let's see, what are you up to? Are you a cartoonist, an animator, uh, a data analyst, uh, all those things? We need them. We'd love your help. And so would 3CR. All right, keep track of uh, my various rants on Twitter at Earthsharing or Prosper underscore AUST, Prosper Australia. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks for uh, letting me get that off my chest. All right, I look forward to being with you in another month.